Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you woke us up, that you gave us breath for another day, that you led us to your house, that you've given us your word, that it is timeless through any culture and, and any code of ethics, that your word remains true because you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we are grateful for that, that immutability. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have for us today, that your spirit would go forth and work in each and every one of our hearts, and we may all grow together as one body and grow closer to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On August 7th, 1974, a Frenchman named Philippe Petit achieved the seemingly impossible by walking a tightrope stretched across the two towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. You can see there the building in the background there. That's the Empire State Building. You can get an idea of how much taller the World Trade Center was even than that. On a website designed to tell the stories of different cities, the article writer describes what happened around this amazing feat. Years before Petit would even dream of undertaking something so breathtaking, he recounts that he was sitting in a dentist's office, waiting room, with tooth pain. He opened up a newspaper and found an artist's rendering of the Twin Towers that hadn't even been built yet at that point. Towers that would be the tallest in the world. He was so inspired to walk between those two towers that once they were completed, once they were completed, that he faked a sneeze, ripped the page out of the newspaper, and left the dentist's office without receiving his dental care. In recounting that experience, Petit mused, Now, of course, I would have a toothache for a week, but what's the pain in comparison that now I have acquired my dream? Of course, like the other two feats he accomplished of tightrope walking between the two towers of Notre Dame in Paris and the two pylons of the Sydney Harbor Bridge, hauling the necessary equipment secretly up to the top of the North Tower of the World Trade Center without a permit would also be illegal. However, after plans were made and executed in movie-worthy, dramatic fashion, Petit was able to guide the wire to the South Tower, and on the morning of August 7, 1974, onlookers on the street below witnessed Petit achieve the impossible. Petit ended up crossing back and forth between the, the, the 104th floor, uh, between both towers, a total of eight times. And even got so comfortable, he got down on one knee and lay down on the cable. <laughs> Petit and his accomplices were arrested, but a judge told Petit that he would dismiss the charges if he performed for children in Central Park. Petit was all too happy to go along with the judge's decision, and his feet would go down in history. I don't know about you, but the temptation to do anything anywhere near that crazy is so far out from me, I wouldn't even begin to think about it. That is not desirable to me whatsoever. Think about the precise balance. The precise balance that it absolutely requires for someone to do that. There is no margin of error whatsoever. And one small misstep could mean the difference between life and death. 
As we've seen over and over again, both in the letters that we've explored in our morning services and as the men's and ladies' Bible studies that have and are discovering, the Apostle Paul is a master of balance when it comes to his arguments. He's a master of balance. Through the movement of the Holy Spirit, Paul knows human nature so well that he can anticipate and address what he knows is going to be potential human responses to his points before his recipients even read each letter that he's sending to them. In essence, his messages are so balanced that he pretty much answers every potential question or response before they can even be asked. The same is true for our passage this morning. We referenced last week that from the beginning of chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians through chapter 6 verse 11 is all the same context. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians if you brought your Bible with you today. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to 1 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament. Uh, If you're having trouble finding it, ask a neighbor. There's no shame in that. Look it up in the table of contents. Uh, It's in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians. Uh, And look with me. We're not going to read all of these, but just skim over this. The beginning of chapter 5, all the way through chapter 6, verse 11, is the same context. Paul started out the beginning of chapter 5, rebuking the sin of the man who had slept with his father's wife. The celebration and boasting of the full acceptance of that sin by the rest of the church and their gross misunderstanding of spiritual freedom and what Paul's prescription for church discipline towards that sin was. We talked about his reasoning behind that discipline in reference to Jesus fulfilling the Feast of Unleavened Bread and really how the church should behave towards anyone openly sinning with absolutely no desire to make that right with God. The reasoning for that response is divulged for us in chapter 6, verse 11, where Paul notes that some in the church were characterized by these sins, but now they should be characterized by the cleansing and transformation of the Holy Spirit in every area of their lives, which Jesus died to give them. A couple of chapters before this, Paul points out that any human minister is nothing, when it comes to giving the giving of salvation from sin and the subsequent spiritual transformation of that person. They're nothing. That all starts and ends with God. No one will lose their salvation. And in and, and, and Paul's true spirit of balance, he anticipates the next human reaction of, well then, since a person's salvation and sanctification begins and ends with God, does a human minister need to be accountable for anything he does? If he's really, truly nothing, and it's all up to God, does he have to be held accountable for anything he does? Paul answers that anticipated question in the middle of chapter 3. yes. Each human minister will be held accountable for their motivation behind how carefully and lovingly he carries out the handling of God's word. Not one of them will lose their salvation, but if a human minister only does things out of human ambition, everything he's done will be burned up and will be as if it never happened. On the other hand, a minister who serves faithfully to the word of God will be rewarded greatly for that faithfulness. That same balanced approach comes out in this morning's passage as well, albeit in a different way, a different context. 
Paul's just gotten done with giving instruction that it's sometimes necessary to preserve the purity and testimony of the church to enact church discipline towards those who claim to be followers of Jesus, but who openly refuse to surrender every area of sin in their lives to repentance and transformation. That, as Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 5.12, is judging those within the church. But Paul knows human nature. And specifically, he knows what the Corinthians have been having trouble with. And what have the Corinthians been having trouble with? Misunderstanding and misapplying Paul's instruction to them. We saw that in chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, which we looked at last week. So knowing that there's a very good chance that the same misapplication is going to happen here too, with what Paul just finished talking about, Paul addresses another concern that has been brought to his attention at the same time, connected to the misapplication of judging those inside the church. Whereas the Corinthians had been lax in their judgment towards the sinning man, and not being judging enough, so to speak, They were being too judgmental when it came to being wronged by each other. Paul then has to give balanced instruction towards the other end of this pendulum swing now. So the first point that we come to in our passage this morning is the meaning. In in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, we read, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Paul phrases verse 1 as a rhetorical question, but in reality, he knows that this is actually going on in the Corinthian church. The mishandling of biblical judging extends from the misapplication of judging the sinful behavior of the surrounding pagan Corinthians outside of the church to this laxity in addressing in-house disputes. Apparently, either the leadership of the Corinthian church refused to handle personal disputes among church members, or the disputing church members refused to bring it before the leadership. Either way, what was happening was that instead of the elders of the Corinthian church handling personal disputes among church members in a biblical way, as instructed by Jesus and Paul, the disputing church members were taking their disputes to secular court instead. They were suing each other in secular courts for disputes that could have easily been reconciled in a biblical way by the eldership of their church. According to one biblical scholar, Paul's use of the phrase, do you not know, in verse 2, is not the first time he's used this phrase, even in this letter, nor will it be the last. Every time he uses this phrase, do you not know, Paul means it to convey that these truths that these are truths that they should have already known. These were basic truths they should have already known. Perhaps that he had even instructed them himself. In addition, the Corinthians that had been so priding themselves on their so-called wisdom, as Paul was addressing in the first couple of chapters of this letter, they're now being rebuked by Paul that they have forgotten or ignored some basic truths about their faith. So much for them being wise. Those basic truths are these, verse 2 again and verse 3. Or do you not know 
that the saints will judge the world. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Now, that's a very interesting thing that Paul just wrote, isn't it? What in the world is Paul getting at here? What is he talking about? There will be those who disagree theologically with this, but the way I best understand this is, is this. When we walked through First and Second Thessalonians, many eschatological topics were explored. Namely, the rapture of believers in Jesus, the Antichrist, his covenant that he would make with Israel, the great tribulation, the breaking of the covenant with Israel at the halfway point through the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, and the subsequent and literal millennial kingdom of Christ on earth. Daniel prophesies, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Now let's unpack that a little bit. You can go back and read Daniel chapter 7 in its context, but I'm going to make things a little easier for us. In these verses, does anyone know who the horn is that's being referred to here? Don't be shy. Who's the horn? The Antichrist. The horn is the Antichrist in, in this passage. Who is the Ancient of Days? God, God incarnate, Jesus. And who are the saints? This one's a little bit trickier. It's kind of a trick question. This one's a little bit trickier. Many biblical scholars will point out that within this context, the saints are the faithful remnant of Israel those 144,000 Jewish people who will put their faith in Jesus during the tribulational period. That's true. But who is Paul talking to in our passage this morning? Only those of Jewish background? No, he's writing to a church that's made up of people of all different kinds of backgrounds, both of Jewish background and many different Gentile backgrounds. So how do we reconcile that? Well, that's reasonably answered with Romans 11, 24 through 25. This may be familiar to those who are going through these studies, the men's and women's uh, Bible studies. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Who are the olive, the wild olive tree branches? The Gentiles. Who is the cultivated olive tree? The, the nation of Israel, the tree of, of, of faith. Furthermore, Paul says elsewhere to Gentile believers in Jesus, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, those of Jewish background, believers in Jesus, and are of God's household. So here, the term saints is used the same way as it is in Daniel, in reference to those of Jewish background who have put their faith in, in Jesus as their Messiah, but the Gentile believers are noted as being the same status as them in God's family, because they, as wild olive branches, have been grafted onto the tree of faith. 
Additionally, Paul also says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, every promise given to the faithful remnant of Israel, including the promise to have some kind of ruling position under Christ in his kingdom, is also extended to Gentile believers in Jesus. But what's important is only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. When will this promise of ruling position be fulfilled? At the time of Jesus' second coming, when he defeats the Antichrist, along with the Antichrist's followers, and sets up his millennial kingdom. We also read in Daniel 7, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Boy, that'll be a great day, won't it? Who will be the subjects? If there's a kingdom, and we will be the ones in the ruling part of this kingdom, who are going to be the subjects or those ruled over in this millennial kingdom? We know that there will be generally two groups of people living on earth at the time of Christ's second coming in the battle of Armageddon against the Antichrist. The first group of people will be those who are deceived by the Antichrist, believing he's the true Messiah, as described for us in 2 Thessalonians 2, and have joined his army gathered against Israel. All of that first group will be destroyed by Christ. We read that in Revelation. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. We don't often think of that purpose of Jesus, do we? We think of him as being the meek man who held sheep and told, uh, held the babies on his lap and told the people about the kingdom of God and went to the cross and rose again on the third day. But this is also what our Lord and Savior will do one day, bringing the, the world under his feet. The second group of people that will be living on earth at the time of Christ's second coming are all those who put their faith in Jesus during the Great Tribulation and who weren't deceived by the Antichrist and who survived the harrowing time of intense persecution against those believers. These will be believing Gentiles, but also the rest of the nation of Israel that's still around. Thus the prophecy that the whole nation of Israel will put their faith in Jesus will be fulfilled. Now what will happen at the beginning of the millennial kingdom which will make it unlike any other period this earth has experienced? The imprisonment of Satan. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. It will be a time unlike any other this earth has ever experienced because Satan will be imprisoned. Since those who survived the tribulation and survived Armageddon would only be those who entered the millennial kingdom without having been resurrected from the dead, either at the rapture or those believers who died during the tribulation, how is Satan going to once again deceive the nations after the thousand years have ended, after he's been released, since those believers would be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Who is he going to deceive? Well, let me answer that by asking another question. Those believers who survive the tribulation, both in Jewish and Gentile background, do they have glorified bodies when they enter the millennial kingdom? No. 
they will still have natural human bodies. What do natural human bodies have the capability of doing that resurrected and glorified bodies will not have the capability of doing? Having kids. They will still be able to do that. We know that this will be a possibility because in describing the millennial kingdom, the prophet Isaiah says, No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will, any, will people be considered old at 100. Only the cursed will die that young. And further on, they will not work in vain and their children will not be doomed to misfortune. For they are people blessed by the Lord and their children too will be blessed. Those who enter the millennial kingdom in natural human bodies of Jewish background will be judged and ruled over by the twelve apostles themselves. We find that out in Matthew. And Jesus said to them, the disciples, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That will be who the apostles rule over. There will be some other kind of hierarchy in the millennial kingdom as well. Christ is the king over every, everything and everyone. The twelve apostles will rule over those who enter the kingdom from Jewish background. We also knew that, know that those who die during the tribulation, both Gentile and Jewish believers, will be resurrected to some other kind of ruling position in this kingdom. Then there are those of us in the current church age, both believers who have already died and those who are still around at the time of the rapture. We will also have places of authority within this hierarchy. Jesus writes to all the churches mentioned at the beginning of Revelation, those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. We, along with those believers resurrected from the dead at the end of the tribulation, will rule and have judging abilities over the Gentile believers who enter the millennial kingdom and their natural bodies, along with any children born during this 1,000-year period. Since this will be a time of unprecedented fertility and abundance of crops, we, as we learn from the prophets, it's quite reasonable to conclude that this will also be a time of unprecedented fertility and abundance of children. That will be an astronomical number of people, which, will, which we will have the responsibility of ruling over under Christ in his hierarchical kingdom. Paul also notes in our passage this morning that we as believers in Jesus will also have the authority to judge angels. Now we cannot be too dogmatic on this topic since scripture does not give too much clear explanation of what that means. But according to one biblical scholar, most likely this means that we'll help judge the fallen angels. Jude 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. In addition, since we are co-heirs with Christ, and Christ is exalted over the angels, and we're co-heirs with Christ, we will probably have some ruling capacity over the holy angels, or those who did not fall. Some of you are sitting here and thinking, I am so much more confused than when I walked in the door today. That's okay. This is just a very, very brief, touching 
of the surface of this topic. Why did I go through all of that? The promise to both Gentile and Jewish believers in Jesus is a tremendous promise that brings with it a tremendous responsibility. It is one that was paid for by the tortuous death of our Lord Jesus upon the cross. It is one that cannot be taken lightly of being part of this hierarchical kingdom when Christ sets it up on earth. Paul's point here to the Corinthians in this context of chapter 5 verse chapter th- uh, through chapter 6, 11 is this. If we have this responsibility of authority waiting for us in the millennial kingdom of Christ, which we do, we better be acting like representatives of that kingdom now. That's his whole point in this context. This extends to our obedience to God's standards and the way we live our lives now, and this extends to our handling of situations that require judgment, discernment, and authority. So that's what Paul was referring to. All of that that we just went through is what Paul is referring to when he says, do you not know that you're going to be doing this? All of that is wrapped up in those two verses in chapter 6. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And do you not know that we will judge angels? All of that is wrapped up in those two verses. And because of that, that should affect the way that we live our lives now. We talked about the meaning of those verses, and now we're going to talk about the matter at hand, why Paul even references that. What had the Corinthians basically done by taking their disputes with each other to secular court? What did they basically do? They had relinquished the responsibility that was going to be given to them in the millennial kingdom and instead handed that authority over to the pagans, the very ones who would not even enter the kingdom because they would be part of the deceived Antichrist army. And yet they're handing over their God-given authority to those people. Paul says to the Corinthians, do you guys see the irony in that decision? Verse 4, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? They're not even going to have any part in the coming millennial kingdom, and yet you're handing your disputes over to them? Paul says, listen, guys, you're relinquishing your Christ-given authority of biblical discernment and judgeship, that same authority that he will use to bless you as a co-ruler of in his kingdom hierarchy, and what are you doing? Instead, you're placing yourselves under pagan judgeship, the very same judgeship that will not only be deceived by the Antichrist, but will be destroyed at the second coming of Christ. What sort of that judgment has anything to do with God's holy church? Obviously, the rhetorical answer was nothing. It had nothing to do with that. That's why Paul says, that's why this behavior is a shame to your church. Verses 5 through 6. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one Wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? What kind of testimony is that, unbelie- 
is that unbelievers see you acting so disunified that you're actually taking each other to court over things that should be easily reconciled in a biblical way under biblical leadership. What kind of testimony is that to an unbelieving world? It's a very bad testimony, Paul says. In fact, it's a glaring defeat for you, the beginning part of verse 7. Actually, then it is already, before you even know the outcome of the court decision, You've all, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why? I mean, besides all the other reasons we've already explored. Because it spits on and goes against the very teaching of Jesus and what he exemplified during his trial and crucifixion. What did Jesus already teach no doubt Paul had already taught them. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. We don't like those words. We don't like those verses. Those rub us the wrong way. What do we naturally want when someone personally wrongs us? It starts with an R. Revenge. We want the other person to feel how they made us feel. But Paul says in verse 8 that when we think that way, skip ahead to verse 8 with me, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud when we think that way. You do this even to your brethren. Now this does not include, I want to be clear about this, this does not mean, include self-defense or trying to get away to safety. This is not what that includes. But what Jesus in Matthew 5 is getting at is a radical way of looking at life. It's a completely different way of looking at life than the rest of the world around us sees it. It's the way that is completely heaven-focused, knowing our true citizenship is not here on earth. That's what he's getting at here. It takes when people wrong us, and it gives it to God. It says God's plan is greater than anything anyone else can do to wrong me. God's plan is greater than even that. It says my focus is not on pride. My focus is on what Jesus has called me to. We extensively went through God's plan for us as believers to rule in Christ's hierarchical millennial kingdom here on earth in our glorified bodies. Instead of driving us to pride, that calls us to a higher focus. One of being a good representative of that kingdom in the here and now. That calls us to a wise, discerning, and biblical response, especially to situations that we feel wrong us. Instead of acting on our human nature. It's a completely different way of looking at everything. That's why Paul says in the second part of verse 7, why not rather be wronged? 
Why not rather be defrauded? Again, those are very hard words for us to hear. Those words echo, though. They echo the ones recorded by Jesus that we've just read. They don't seem right, but if they're words spoken by the Lord, who are we to say, nope, that's a little too far, I'm not going to do that. It, doesn't not, it does not make sense to the world, and it does not make sense to us in our human nature. And that is the point. That's the entire point. Paul's already extensively explained how the way God designed his way to, to him was purposely designed to not make sense to the world. It was purposely designed to not make sense to us naturally. It has to be spiritually taught by the Holy Spirit. We cannot arrive at it on our own. It has to be spiritually taught to us by the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, this means letting things go. Knowing that God even has a purpose for that wrong. Oftentimes, this means forgiveness. Knowing that it's God who is ultimately in control of our life's path anyway, and nothing takes him by surprise, and everything is meant for our growth. At all times, this means the opportunity to have freedom from that wrong. To release ourselves of being held captive by that wrong anymore. At all times, that means the opportunity of freedom from that. Again, it's definitely not easy. You all know that. Let's just be honest here. It is definitely not easy, and it definitely goes against our human nature. Why do you think Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians for their lack in this area in the first place? It takes God's strength, God's power, and God's growth in our lives to not take everything personally, to let things go when we feel we've been wronged, and to forgive when it's more complicated than that. God has called each and every one of us as his children, bought with the blood of Christ, to a higher purpose, above and, ab and beyond the wrongs, a higher purpose. One of which is to rule with Christ in his coming earthly kingdom in the future. That gives us the freedom to have peace even when we've been wronged. That gives us the freedom to be heavenly focused and not earthly focused. That gives us the freedom to know that someday, either when we die or Jesus comes back for us, all the wrong we suffer in this life will be over. It will be in the past and we will have all the blessings of the life to come to look forward to. That gives us the freedom to begin to heal from past wrongs towards us. So, let us all be representatives of Jesus' kingdom in the here and now. Let's all show the pagan world around us that we're different 
that we let things go, that we don't take everything personally, that we're not offended by everything, because we have been called to a higher purpose. We are different. We have the freedom that Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later to give to us. Let us show them that we follow a plan that was purposely designed to not make sense to them. Let us lead them through our following of his example to the one who can give them that same heavenly focused freedom no matter what the situation is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these very hard but very empowering words that you have given to us in your word. We thank you that you do not leave us where you find us, but you are constantly, 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 whether we know it or not, working on our hearts. You are constantly molding us into the image of your Son, especially when it comes to being wronged. Lord, we know everything that you experienced at your illegal trial and then all the events leading up to you carrying that cross up to Golgotha and then being nailed to it as you were mocked and humiliated and you died upon that cross for us. So Lord, we thank you that you have called each and every one of us as believers in you to a higher purpose, one of which to co-rule with you someday. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the power and the strength and the growth in our lives now to be good representatives of that kingdom. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.